Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, July 21st, 2017. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Um, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Tiffany, Doug, Gabby, and Erica. Hey, guys. And Elliot. Hello. Oh, and Elliot is here. Awesome. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Elliot. All right. So today we're going to talk about the misguided quest for happiness. Uh Happiness is ill-defined, elusive, uh, it's fleeting, but it's relentlessly pursued uh, by everybody, essentially. And, of course, there's the stock phrase, you know, the, the pursuit of happiness uh, or the pursuit of liberty. I think originally it was the pursuit of liberty, and then they changed it to happiness, which is kind of BS. Uh, <laughs> one to find the other. All, so we're going to kind of delve into that today. But uh, I guess let's get started and... Um, Maybe just kind of go with a baseline. So uh, when you guys think about this, when you think happiness, do you think fulfillment? Because like in my mind, fulfillment comes with some suffering too. And so I wonder mm. how many people have different definitions of happiness. I think there's yeah. tons of different definitions of happiness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody really agrees. I think that different people have different definitions for happiness too. I mean, it seems like some people... You know, fulfillment is definitely a big part of it for, for a lot of people. But I think that some people are happy to just, you know, hang out with friends or just veg out on the couch or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a subjective thing, which is always kind of difficult to define. Yeah. I would agree with that. There's definitely not like a standard, you know, kind of ob- ob- objective definition of happiness. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a highly subjective thing, and I think because um, so many people have different ideas of what it is to be happy, um, then when there is some sort of external thing that is claiming that if you do it or if you um, uh, basically do something, and it says that you're going to be happy, then then you know, like uh, a lot of people can sort of identify with that, and they can, but it but. Like in terms of the objective meaning of happiness, like uh, I think that's a hard one to define. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't know what I would say was happy. I, I don't uh, probably an association or, or, or a conglomeration of of uh, different positive feelings and emotions and stuff. But mm-hmm. then is 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 that just a superficial thing? Is that a superficial sort of um, interpretation of the word happy? And do, is there actually some deeper sort of level of fulfillment and things that that come with that? as a result of suffering or whatever. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a difficult yeah. one. Well, I think, I mean, there is, uh, it just occurred to me that we might be able to objectively define happiness in itself as like a, a state of mind, but that what's subjective mm. is what causes happiness. Mm. Yeah. There's one definition that I found. Uh, and whoever wrote this article, they said that many neuroscientists and psychiatrists and behaviorists and monks agree (laughs) that happiness is more like a feeling of satisfaction or contentment. Um, It's not necessarily being happy as in bursting with glee. There's Mm. depth and deliberation to it, and it involves living a meaningful life, using your gifts and your time, and living with thought and purpose. Mm. So I thought that was a pretty good definition. But I don't know that the average person <laughs> would give that much thought to it. 
They just think people who are happy are smiling and laughing and always positive all the time. Yeah. Mm. The other thing is, too, that it, it can, you know, it's like we said in the show description that happiness is ill-defined, elusive, and fleeting. And I think um, that definition doesn't sound elusive and fleeting at all. It sounds like, you know, kind of how you would define maybe like a happy life yeah. as opposed to happiness, which can be very transient, you know, like you can be having a conversation with somebody and you're having a good time. And then all of a sudden things, you know, turn for the worse and suddenly it's an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that, that is quite fleeting. So, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of like that definition, but um I don't know if it's applicable to every situation that you would necessarily apply to, like, happiness. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people get stuck in the expectation or also in the past, Mm -hmm. what made them happy in the past, and they kind of disregard all the other aspects. So it's interesting that, you know, as it says in our show description, how... You know, it's relentlessly pursued by millions of people and people take classes and buy books and the self-help section and, and yet it's, it is elusive. Mm. Yeah. And I think because of that, and you know, this is probably a byproduct too of our kind of society and advertising and all these kinds of things. Like people kind of have an expectation of happiness. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the expectation is that somebody is going to be just happy all the time. Like if you're having a good life, then it means that you know, 24 hours a day, you're happy, you're in a good mood, you don't get challenged by things or, you know, have disagreeable moments. Um, And, you know, it's like you're surrounded by all this kind of, like I said, advertising and stuff where, you know, people are participating in in different activities and they've got different products that are obviously making them blissfully um, joyous. But um, I wonder if that expectation, well, I don't really wonder. I, I think that expectation is actually... Uh, nonsense. And I think that it maybe, you know, puts forward like an unrealistic expectation of what it is to be happy. Yeah, it's like imposed from external forces. Like if you have this life, uh, this car, this house, you will be happy. And people come to expect all these things in order to be happy. And does it really make them happy once they achieve it? I don't know. Yeah, I think this well, there's one article actually. No. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say like there was that, that one article that talked about how it's the pursuit of these things that usually have more emotion attached to them than the actual getting of them. You know, it's like you really want something, and it's kind of like the achieving of getting it is where all the emotion is. And once you get it, you're kind of like you're excited for a little while, but then it's kind of like well, then you go back to kind of your baseline level of happiness. It's just you've got this new thing as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say, I would say no. Yeah, like they gave the example of that guy who worked really, really hard for a long time to write a book. And then once he wrote a book, he was like, hmm, I'm a guy who just wrote one book. (laughs) 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 Well, again, it's that expectation, that expectation that some future reward, like you're not happy now, you're not happy for the 20 years that you worked your job. But when you retire, (laughs) then you may be happy. Maybe. Yeah. I think there's a a big aspect of selfishness in it, too. Yeah. Like, Mm. you're basically just concentrating on what is going to make you feel good or what's going to make you feel better. And you're totally avoiding living in the present moment. You're just thinking about Mm. some nebulous future reward. And you're ignoring everything else. 
Or some people are actually very active in the pursuit of this happiness, like they are in overdrive. Like I know a guy that has taken like 20 different martial arts disciplines because one was not enough, you know, and mm. it's just going to the next, to the next, to the next. And I was like, when is it going to stop? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Dopamine addict. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean everybody's so unique. You know, some some people might have drive and seem obsessive, but their happiness comes from just pursuing things. You know, mm. while a person who looks the same way from external perspective might also be just really uh psychologically damaged and obsessed. Mm. You know, so yeah. I, it's like I feel like it's it's so unique. It's again it's really hard to define, but uh I think that this uh where we can <clears throat> trying to put my thoughts into words uh, where we can like distinguish kind of uh, two or, you know, single digit number of camps of people who think certain things about happiness. that kind mm-hmm. of like in our description that there's kind of one side that consider happiness a state of mind uh, that can be cultivated. Other people say that it's complete BS and that you're totally lying to yourself if you pursue mm-hmm. happiness. And I think that like trying to find a balance between those, is really key no matter what you do. I mean, like, you know, it's really hard to say. I find myself struggling with it too. Like the guy who drinks a, a, a case of beer a day, hmm. uh, <clears throat> he may be in a, in a stupor and he probably uh, certainly doesn't know himself intimately, but like, you know, is he happy? Does he feel happy hmm. on a consistent basis as long as he drinks that beer? And if it's like kind of like an X, Y condition, I don't know. I guess I'm say, I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying like uh, that there are psychopaths that probably pursue their own whatever form of happiness by harming other people. And that there are mm. other people who in their pursuit of happiness harm themselves, but that they don't really deserve to be judged for that. I guess that's where I was going. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like people who drink a case of beer every night or shoot up heroin or eat a whole bag of potato chips and a whole bag of cookies. <laughs> They're all reaching from for some fleeting sense of happiness or feeling good. That, yeah. But they're not yeah, they're not happy really. They not just get deeply, these right. Yeah, they get these bursts of dopamine or whatever kind of feel good chemicals in their brains and that sustains them in between periods of monotony and hmm. drudgery. Yeah. Totally. I can certainly say that I would wish for them what I consider to be a different form of happiness. But, you know, Mm. maybe they're not like ready for that either. It's hard to say. Now I'm starting to feel cocky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's been lots of studies showing or speculating, I should say, about what can actually help people achieve happiness or a greater sense of well-being. And the thing that keeps coming up a lot is doing things for other people, Mm -hmm. being generous or altruistic, even if it's not anything that you would consider huge, like donating tons of money to some cause or something, just doing a small act for somebody else. Now, whether that's kind of selfish because people get a reward they feel good. Basically, that's the reward for helping people or if it comes from a different place or does it even matter? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
One of my yeah, favorite you, quotes. It says, uh, "Shared joy is increased." You know, when you help other people, you know, and people are thankful. You know, it's like everybody's happier. <laughs> yeah, when you accomplish something as a group, uh, it's pretty cool. For sure. Yeah, there, this um, this one study <clears throat> is basically measuring. Um, uh, I think it was the one that you were sort of alluding to, Teth. It was basically about um, how they could find out whether being altruistic or being generous to other people, whether that could basically make people feel happy in and of itself. And um, and so they found that um, it did increase the, the overall happiness of the participants of the study just by giving something small to other people. And what was I found really most fascinating about this study was that they showed that it wasn't about the amount that was given. So it wasn't like a, a quantitative thing. Um, mm. And, and it, it, you know, it, it didn't really matter whether someone gave a lot or just gave a little. It was just this. It was the act of giving something to someone else that made them feel happier in themselves. And so it says, um, one of the quotes, it says, you don't need to become a self-sacrificing martyr to feel happier. Just being a little more generous will suffice. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and there was another aspect of that study as well that actually showed that um, simply just making a promise to behave generously, um, it activated the same area of the brain um, that is associated with happiness. And so <laughs> I'm not saying that, yeah, make loads of promises to be generous and then don't follow through with those promises. <laughs> but <laughs> that wouldn't be very good. <laughs> but um, but just, I guess, just the idea of it to in your brain, it activates the same sort of circuits. And so I guess... Um, what may be lacking in people's lives is is um, is is a perhaps a, an ability to to sort of um, give to other people. You know, I guess I guess if you look at our world now, we're fairly segregated from one another. You know, we're isolated and we live in these houses, and it's very sort of different to how the the, the communities sort of used to function, even in the hundred years ago or so. And so everyone's just gradually becoming more and more and more isolated from one another. And I guess what that does is it kind of limits the opportunities for someone to reach out and give to other people. Um, and I guess there's not an excuse because, uh, you know, if, if, if you really want to give, you, you know, you could say that someone might, you know, they, they might go out and give to charity or they might go out and help the poor or something. But I mean, generally in day to day life, we, we don't have as many human interactions or I would say that's probably not, uh, you know, that's not based on any evidence. But just from my life, I know that I spend I go to work and then I come back and I'm sat in my house all day, you know, that, from then on I go to bed. That would make sense that now you would have statistically fewer chances to be generous because you run into less people. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was I, another I, interesting study in the Journal of Positive Psychology, which makes <laughs> you wonder. But anyway, they, uh, they asked nearly 400 Americans, like ranging from 18 to 78, whether they thought their lives were meaningful and or happy. And basically, the, their self-reported attitudes towards meaning, happiness, and other variables like stress levels and 
children and spending patterns. And they did it over a month period and they found that a meaningful life and a happy life overlap in certain ways, but are ultimately very different. So leading a happy life, the psychologist found, is associated with being a taker, while leading a meaningful life corresponds with being a giver. And so the authors kind of figured out that happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow, self-absorbed, and even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied, and difficult or taxing entanglements are avoided. So it's very big difference. Yeah. I think that whole idea of the, the pursuit of happiness, what is it again? What is it for selfish means? Yeah. yeah. We, we had an example here that happened in my hometown recently. Um, we have some road work construction going on. And uh, <clears throat> some people, nobody knows who were like throwing stuff at the workers because they're slowing down all the traffic. Right. And it's become a huge pain in the ass to drive through town. But um, this came out in the local paper that this had happened and immediately they were flooded with like, you know, lunch and like uh, umbrellas and water and everybody was coming down with signs like support the road crew and it, it like turned into this whole thing. And you could see when you drove through that everybody was happy and smiling. So it was like people had come together to, to help somebody that they saw or that they perceived as being persecuted. Now, if they could apply that logic to the whole planet, that would be awesome. <laughs> but we'll start with a hometown. That's good for now. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, our show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was your hometown. Oh, dropped again. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if there's a journal of uh, negative psychology. <laughs> I think every journal is a journal of negative psychology. <laughs> so if well, everybody me... is pursuing all this happiness all over the planet, why does it seem like people are more miserable than ever? <laughs> like antidepressants are the top selling big pharma drugs and anxiety is now the most common emotion. Is that what that article said? Yeah, we carried an article recently on SOT. Anxiety overtakes depression as the most common mental health issue for Americans. Mm -hmm. And it sure. focused on college kids, but I, I think it's across the board. Place. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like there, what was it? Data from the National Institute of Mental Health suggests the prevalence of anti or anti-anxiety medication, excuse me, anxiety disorders in the U.S. may be as high as 40 million or about 18% of the population over the age of 18 making it the most common illness in the nation. Hmm. Well, that makes me think that people are just simply out of touch, like their body or their adaptive unconscious is telling them that it's everything, you know, it sucks, reality, it's pretty bad. But they are so engaged in this pursuit of happiness and self-denial that, you know, the mismatch between what they see unconsciously and what they force themselves to believe, it's so out of touch that, yes, it just creates mental illness. Yeah, and basically it seems like a lot of the article focused, again, on college students, but even children. So, you know, pushing that idea that if you just do well, you'll get, you'll be happy. If mm -hmm. you just, you know, graduate college, you'll be happy. You'll make money, you'll have a job. And 
I think the reality is, is people go through all that and they're still in the same place, but now they're in debt mm-hmm. and they have to get a job to pay their loans or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's sick. kind of a false premise. And then you realize probably around 25, wow, I'm, I'm not happy. <laughs> it was all a lie. Everybody lied to me. <laughs> I'm going to go back to school for another degree and then maybe I'll be happy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Become a positive psychologist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe that will be good. So I have to um I have to admit that I was wrong earlier about the phrase uh the pursuit of liberty, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That 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 oh. is actually the phrase that we... huh. oh, okay. Wikipedia and the entry about this phrase. Uh, says there's a debate about what the word happiness may have meant in 1776. (laughs) (laughs) It's still being debated today. (laughs) But is this some kind of, is this uh, some kind of American motto? Oh, I'm sorry. It's a, um, uh, it's from the Declaration of Independence. Oh, uh, (laughs) we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That That all men are created equal, that they're endowed with their creative by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, Is that ever a lie? <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it says here... Uh, You're allowed to pursue the, it. The happiness section, current usage focus on, focuses on pleasant, positive emotions and having needs satisfied, whereas in 1776, the common meaning may have been prosperity, thriving, and well-being. Well, that's interesting because they did another study where they compared a group of American modern day people and a group, I think they were from the UK, like uh, they talked to them in 1938, I believe. And they said a lot of similar things like what makes them happy and fulfilled is spending time with family, seeing their kids after a long day of work, having a loving relationship with their spouse and the modern day people said pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that people get not necessarily what they would, you know, define it as happiness, but things that give their life meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Very uh, universal. Yeah. also yeah. interesting that uh, Jefferson took that phrase from, uh, from Locke, from John Locke uh, in 1689, mm-hmm. uh, which is says here in his essay concerning human understanding, the highest perfection of intellectual nature lies in a careful and constant pursuit of true and solid happiness. Hmm. That was, well, he mentioned that was the truth. Yeah, he did. Careful and constant pursuit of true and solid happiness. So that makes sense to me if you well, put all those words together. I don't know. Tell us. Tell us why not. I'm just thinking like, you know, maybe, maybe this is just me poorly kind of defining happiness, but it seems like happiness, like the way it's often thought of is kind of like an absence of, you know, whatever negativity, discomfort, um, things that are, uh, difficult. And, you know, it kind of seems like in order to kind of pursue that, yeah, maybe I don't have this quite well thought out, but it seems, it seems like, you know, there's a there's a real difference between meaning and happiness, I guess, because I think the pursuit of meaning is something that's going to inherently have challenges, and it's something yeah. that's going to inherently cause suffering to a certain mm-hmm. degree. I mean, it's it's a conscious suffering. It's something that you're pursuing, whereas you know, pursuing happiness is almost like wanting to 
alleviate those feelings. Like kind of like I don't want to be challenged. I don't want to, um, you know, not feel good. So I, I wonder. Yeah. It, it kind of maybe it is a, a difference in in the way the term was used in in different time periods. But um, sure. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah pursuit also of meaning. Pursuit of meaning makes more sense. If you think about it, like if you want to get to a place in your life where your life has meaning and your life has purpose, it requires a lot of suffering and failures and struggling to get to that point where your life has meaning. And as a byproduct, you experience more moments of happiness. In in um in line with that point, there was an interesting quote by Albert Einstein, and this really made me chuckle. But it's it, you know it makes a lot of sense. He said, "Happiness never appeared to me as an absolute aim. I am even inclined to compare such moral aims to the ambitions of a pig. <laughs> the ideals <laughs> have lighted my way. <laughs> the ideals have lighted my way." Um, no, the ideals that have lighted my way are kindness, beauty, and truth. And I think, I think, um, you know, in in line with the with the pursuit of sort of meaning uh, and truth in, in the world, you know, it, happiness can be. You, could, I guess, you could you could say a, a pig when a pig finds some food and starts eating the food, he's probably really happy. But <laughs> do you just want to be in this state where you've got where where um, you know? Uh, I can't get my words out, but uh, well, it's kind of the difference. I guess what just having your immediate needs met versus yeah. pursuing maybe a larger aim. Yeah. Your animalistic needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. yeah. I, I I feel like this ties along those lines. This ties into knowledge too. And I'll give a really pedantic example. Is just that like if I'm fishing on a on a river and I haven't been to this spot before, and I go through like a swampy area. And I step in a hole, you know, it's like, there's holes there that I don't know about it. So I step in one and I hurt my ankle and that sucks. And I'm kind of pissed for a minute, but now I'm happy because I know more about my surroundings because I've assimilated Mm. knowledge. And now I know not to go that way and I can go a different way. So it's a super Mm. simple example, but to me that plays in like, I'm happy because I'm more knowledgeable about what exists around me. Hmm even though I hurt my ankle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or does yeah. the average depressed person have that particular outlook? Like people who well, yeah, want to achieve certain goals, know on some level that there's going to be some struggle involved, but there are people who have this outlook like everything that ba- everything bad that happens to me is, makes me a bad person. You know, I'm not worthy. I'm stupid. I'm lazy. I can't do anything right. There are some people who feel that way, and I hate to say that they'll never be happy, but that's <laughs> yeah. kind of what it is. Some people are born more optimistic, have a more optimistic outview or outlook on life, and other people are negative Nancys. Mm-hmm. There is also some research which suggests that people with very low self-esteem are more comfortable receiving negative feedback. Like good feedback makes them really feel at odds because mm-hmm. it's not coherent with their self-view. So are they sure. really happy, you know, or not? Yeah. Mm. There, there was an article um, called The Happiness Conspiracy. And there's a <laughs> couple interesting... <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny one. Yeah, um, but there's a couple of quotes in there. 
um, that I just wanted to read out, and they they made a lot of sense. Um, It says, a society's dominant value system dictates how happiness is measured. The native Navajos in the southwest of the U.S. saw happiness as the attainment. Ah, uh, Navajo, okay. <laughs> the native Navajo in the southwest of the US saw happiness as the attainment of universal beauty. Um, whereas personal satisfaction is the most common way of measuring happiness in today's society. Mm-hmm. Um, this mirrors the su- supreme value that con- consumer culture attaches to the romancing of desire and the satiation of self. When, when measured this way, almost everyone seems pretty happy, even if it's primarily false, even if it's primarily false needs that are being satisfied. Um, a high percentage of depressed people even end up happy when personal satisfaction is the yardstick. So it's, it, the way that I interpret that is basically it's saying that as long as we measure happiness as, um, I, I guess as, as personal satisfaction, which you can get from, um, minor things in, in life, I guess. And, and I guess this is one of the reasons why people binge out on drugs, uh, eat junk food. Um, and, you know, like, like you said before, you, you, you may buy something and, and, and you think that you're going to be happy when you buy that. But then when you sort of, when you buy it, you just realize that you've just got another thing and you're still in the same <laughs> position as you were. Um, and that's because it's kind of like personal satisfaction. And I guess that applies on, on multiple different levels. Um, but this 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 article is pointing out that you know personal satisfaction is is it may be a part of happiness to some degree, but it's not um, it's not the full picture, and it's not something that we should aim for consistently. But I guess in today's world, um, I, th- I think this whole this whole phenomenon is part of the human condition in general, and it's probably gone on for as long as humanity have, have you know been in existence to some extent. But I think especially now in, in today's society, in the way that we are um, exposed to the advertising and the media and the propaganda and all of this stuff, and, and that, that we're isolated and segregated from other people in our, in our society, um, I think we're particularly vulnerable to, to, to adopting this kind of view. Um, and as as we can see, like when you look at the statistics, like you mentioned earlier, Tiff, I think it was, um, that happiness, even even though, um, well, apparently wages have increased, you know, by like twice. Um, and, and we've got all of these new consumer goods, like all this technology and, you know, we have access to all these cool new things. But it shows that that doesn't actually bring happiness. You know, it's, it, will, it may bring personal satisfaction. But ultimately, people who indulge that personal satisfaction, if you ask them, they're not happy in the long run. So we have to sort of acknowledge that this um, base level sort of satisfaction thing that we tend to do a lot is is not or we shouldn't mix it up with what may be true happiness. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if you if you get to know people, uh, not just on the surface, but the hap- the happiest people I think that you meet are people who have suffered significantly. Mm-hmm. And then you see a lot of people who really haven't suffered in their life and have, uh, and of course, you know, that's subjective too. I'm, I'm, I live in the United States, you know, my suffering is not the suffering of the rest of the world. And that's just a, that's just a fact that, um, but, uh, <clears throat> that yeah, a lot of people that have gone through hardship uh, do seem to be happier on a on a deeper level. 
and those who have been coddled are more petulant, you know, or selfish. Uh, harder to I, I've just, I've just got know. a little anecdote here about that, and I think that's really like a true, true assessment, Jonathan. And it's something that my my mum used to say to me a lot when I was younger, um, when I was being a bit of a spoiled brat, I think. Uh, you know, first world sort of problems when you don't get your own way or you don't get the toy that you wanted or whatever. The sort of stuff that kids, you know, experience today, which probably can't really be likened to genuine suffering. But uh, nonetheless, it's when we we went on holiday, on a family holiday um, to the Dominican Republic when I was quite young. I think I was six years old. And um, and we went on some sort of tours around the countryside, around the sort of rural areas, and we got to meet some of the um, some of the children, some of the families who who lived in these rural villages. Um, and one thing that struck me, and I was really young at the time, I was as I said, I was like six years old, but it's still stuck with me today, is how these these people had barely anything in terms of material value. Um, they, they were literally walking around barefoot, living in a hut and just like, <laughs> but yeah. the smallest thing, the, the smallest thing would, would put a smile on their face. And there, there was like a, a distinct sensation that these people were so well bonded with one another. Yeah. And clearly they, yeah. they hadn't, they hadn't got anything in terms of, you know, they didn't have cars or TVs or mobile phones or anything like that that we see as important in our in our side of the world, but they seem to have some degree of of sort of contentment and I guess possibly even genuine happiness to some extent. And my mum, you know, when after that point, you know, when I was growing up and my mum was trying to teach me certain lessons, um, she would she would often bring that up and she would say, "Look, you know." Look at the. Remember those children? How you know they they uh, they they're happy. You know <laughs> you don't need these things to be happy in life. Right. Um, right. Often it makes you unhappy if you have too many of these things. Totally. A, a, a example on the, on the same lines uh, or very similar. Um, so I follow this uh, hunting and fishing show called Meat Eater. If you haven't ever seen it, I recommend checking it out. It's on Netflix. The host is really great. Super compassionate intelligent dude um but he uh traveled to uh, guyana <clears throat> for this fishing trip and he's very like culturally aware you know so he's trying not to leave a footprint all that kind of stuff and this is also from his podcast that i kind of had heard this whole story but the people there the native people are called chumani and they are like kind of like you described elliot you know they um they make their own arrows uh they make their own bows everything is from scratch uh the only like kind of first world thing that they had in their system of hunting and fishing was um, machete blades that they would break up and use as arrowheads that they had gotten from other places. So, but now they're doing fishing tourism because they get money from people who come in and want to catch these giant fish called Dorado. So this guy goes there and they're going down the river and he gives them this polarized sunglasses and like try to look in the water with these. And he's amazed because you can see everything in the water with polarized sunglasses. Long story short, they come back a year later everybody's got polarized sunglasses and he was just kind of like, Oh shit. You know, I, maybe I started something that I shouldn't have started here. And so <laughs> then he, he had wanted to show them his compound bow and he was really struggling with that because he felt like that would at no fault of their own, it, that they would just adopt it because it's higher tech. 
and then lose the way that they had of making their own stuff. And so it's like, mm. it was making similar observations on happiness. You know, they were completely happy and it's like, they were talking about the sun. He was talking about the sunglasses with his fishing guide and saying, you know, uh, I'm really nervous that I gave you guys these sunglasses because basically I don't want to screw up your culture, you know? And he's like, what are you talking about? We want more of this stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's the problem. You really don't trust me, you know? And then they were going back <laughs> and forth. And it was an it interesting really... conversation. That's interesting. Yeah. I also had similar experiences like from Costa Rica. Yes. Remember visiting very poor neighborhoods And in some houses, even though they will not even have a proper floor, you know, you can enter in and you can feel the joy, you know, of their lives, you know, it's just all by human connection. And, uh, and out there, like in the modern world, he quotes, like what it's sold to people, it's like psychopathic official culture, basically. And it's so out of touch with basic human values that it's no wonder why there are so many unhappy people, you know. Well, there's some researchers who call that kind of phenomenon the hedonic treadmill, where you get on this never-ending cycle of wanting stuff and then getting stuff and then getting a little bit of a, a fix from getting that thing. And then that fix goes away and you want stuff and then you get stuff and you just keep doing this over and over again throughout your entire life. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there was a, actually the Center for Disease Control did a research project about Americans discovering satisfying life purposes. And they found that four out of 10 people had not discovered it, mm -hmm. but also that 40% either do not think their lives have a clear sense of purpose or are neutral about whatever their lives have purpose. So nearly a quarter of Americans feel neutral or do not have a strong sense of what makes their lives meaningful. And so again, it's back to that American way of pursuing happiness. So you think if you have money, you know, you can buy all these things. And I think that's where that treadmill happens. It's like, well, if I just buy a house or if I just buy a car and, and this satiation wears off quickly and we see that time and again with women shopping like with this shoe obsession mm -hmm. you know if I just buy another <laughs> pair of shoes then I'm going to be happy and a long time ago I had a therapist who I spent time with as a child and she said you know what it really is is that people women in particular are going to the malls and they're looking for bonding experiences they sh they, but because of American culture of buying They figure that if they buy something that they'll feel satisfied, but they never do. You, and, and then you feel worse. Like if you spend a lot of money on a pair of shoes that you didn't really have money for, then then you feel bad about it and then you never wear them anyway. So what was interesting they were talking about in this Center for Disease Control, the research showed that having purpose and meaning in life increases your overall well-being mm -hmm. and your, your life satisfaction, your mental health, your physical health your resiliency, even your self-esteem, and it decreases your chance of depression, you know? And yet there are people that would choose a very, very stressful, high-paying job that only gave them like six hours of sleep. They choose that. <laughs> Then so what is the, what, what, think that the greatest? People think that happiness. It doesn't, but to a certain <laughs> extent, it can, and just that it, 
gives you comfort and you're free from stress and worry about meeting your basic needs. But after a certain amount of money you get, any more money on top of that really doesn't matter. I feel yeah, like, I mean, like money is energy, right? You know, and so if mm-hmm. you if you misuse it, then you're going to be miserable. If you get a lot of money, then, you know, if you have in mind what you want to do with it and you can do meaningful things, I think that would then result in happiness. If you don't have the time, <laughs> I was just going to point out that <laughs> one of the greatest regrets of the dying is I wish I would not have worked that much, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's almost like that, that single-minded pursuit of happiness leaves people less happy. Yeah. Because yeah. maybe they work their entire lives and then they die. And like you said, Gabby, they have all this regret. I wish I would have spent more time with my children. I wish I would have... Mm-hmm you know, gone outside more or, or spent time appreciating what I had. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, it becomes an addiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes me, if I may refer back to the, uh, the Chumani people in Guyana again, but one part of that story was that they, um, they, they hunt and fish and then they live, you know, and that's essentially what they do. Now they're getting more into like commerce. So they, they used to go out and catch this fish. They take like a 12 day trip. And they'd come back with enough meat that they would sell for like 75 us dollars. Now, you know, white guys from the States are going down there and paying $7,000 to catch one of these fish and then throw it back. So it's still there. Mm. And they're of course like, okay, that makes you guys happy. Sure. We'll take your money. (laughs) Um, But now this now in relative relative to all the other regions of Guyana, this one particular area has become super wealthy because people are paying them to catch this fish. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, along with that comes rivalries uh, between different groups of people because they're jealous. Um, You know, so it just kind of, you know, is that helping or not? I don't really know. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I wanted to share like uh, Elliot did at a very young age. I didn't get to go to another country, but I did watch a movie about the Kalahari Bushmen in Africa called The Gods Must Be Crazy. (laughs) And I really recommend it for anyone, especially for kids, because it's Essentially, a man throws a Coke bottle out of his airplane window and these Kalahari Bushmen find it. And they're very happy before they find this Coke bottle. And then this Coke bottle all of a sudden is the prized possession in the village. And everybody's using it to tan hides or to do dig tubers or all these things. And and the, the head father of the tribe realizes that, yes, this is a great tool, but it it's really caused a lot of problems. Like the kids start fighting and one kid hits the other kid with the bottle. And, and his journey now is to throw the Coke bottle off the edge of the earth. And I really recommend it because it is such a great parody. And I think it came out in the eighties. I don't know. I was pretty young, like seven when I watched it. And it was 1980, it was a pretty life changing movie for me. I, I will say it was like, wow. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of people who win the lottery and they think, oh, all my dreams have come true. I got all these millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then they find out like it brings so much more trouble and their lives become miserable and all their families start arguing and bickering over money. And they just kind of wish, at least some of them wish that they just never won the lottery because it made their lives just a misery. Sure. I, th- I think uh, one one part that sort of plays into that is um, is that 
it's hard to value something if you haven't worked for it as well mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i think this is this is like a common theme in our world now especially in the western world is that we have things offered to us on a plate essentially we we are completely disconnected from the whole process of how something is manufactured for instance like um, a table you know <laughs> a table we just go to the shop and buy a table or whatever and then in, put it into our kitchen mm-hmm. but you, you completely neglect the whole reality of the situation whereby the tree has had to be cut down and then the wood has had to be chopped then it's had to be manufactured put together and then tanned and all, all that stuff i guess this can apply to any type of thing with our food or with anything that we have ready readily sort of available access to and I think that when you don't have to sort of, um, you know, put much effort into something, when, when there's when there's very little work that's gone into something and you have it offered to you on a plate, it's, it's fairly difficult to, to really see the value in it. And this is, I think, one of the things is to why, you know, these, these sort of these cultures or, you know, the poor people in these sort of cultural regions of, of the third world, um, perhaps contributes to their happiness is that for them to be able to to do something they have to put a lot of work into it <laughs> you know like mm. if they want to make a meal they have to go and cut down a branch from a tree and then like let it dry and then you know stick it on the fire and then skin the meat and everything that goes into that and it, i guess it's kind of like uh you know they they see the value in that and i guess it's the process and it's and it's sort of acknowledging the achievement Perhaps yeah. that that is one thing that, that contributes to genuine happiness is is the process of having to work for something, and then I guess there is a degree of of personal satisfaction that comes with that. But it's 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 in a sort of objective sense that you you deserve some satisfaction because you put loads of work into it, and so you should give yourself a pat on the back and you should be thankful for what you've got. But because we don't, we generally don't have to do things like that. Um, it, it's you know it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of of this of this wanting more and more and more and more and more yeah it, totally that i think you're a hundred percent on point there um you know it's like if you were to grow your own basil versus going to the store and buying a sprig of basil for like five bucks you know growing your own and picking it and eating it is much more satisfying um mm-hmm. I find the same thing with fish. I know I'm on fishing today. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But there, you know, brook trout are relatively small. A big one is like a foot. And, uh, but you work really hard to get them. They're really hard to catch. And then when you come home, you know, your dinner is like not what you would normally think of as a dinner, but it's super satisfying. And it's all just Hmm. goes into that effort, I think. Well, there's also more appreciation for it. Like you were saying, Elliot, when you spend an entire day making a meal, you're benefiting everyone and everyone has worked collectively together. And that's where the satisfaction comes, the meaningful experience of being with other people and working together. And and then everyone shares the rewards. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yep. So uh, one of the topics we had kind of touched on when we were talking before the show, which I was curious what you guys think about is uh, in relation to happiness, comedy and comedians. Because <laughs> it's kind of closely tied, right? I mean, you go to a comedy show mm-hmm. or you watch comedy, you, you laugh, you feel happy. Um, 
but I've been like, I mean, I'm, I'm a comedy fan anyway, but lately I've been delving into comedy a little more and like finding new, you know, comedians and stuff online. And by and large, most comedians are totally miserable people. Um, <laughs> and they admit that too. So it's funny that they would be the ones who would have these observations that would then make other people happy. Um, yeah. But again, it's super subjective because some comedy, uh, some styles that I don't particularly like, uh, like for instance, roasting, I think it's yeah. hilarious. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is really fun, but there's such a fine line. It can go into that realm of like, no, now you're just being super mean, but everybody yeah. there, there's a camp of people that think that that, that crossing that line is funny. Um, yeah. I, well, it's I all those things to, like, that people aren't daring to say, I think yeah, yeah. like you're, they're thinking that and now all of a sudden somebody is saying it and right. They can laugh because they've had that thought. There's something about two people who have a, that you can, you can think of about me and I'm still going to laugh that when they have that agreement, then it's funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then when you're just ripping on somebody and they're not into it, it it doesn't become funny anymore. And then it's tragedy, you know, and it's happiness is no longer the outcome. There is also that kind of style of comedy that is kind of all about being uncomfortable. Like I know there's certain movies out there where it's like <clears throat> it's it's a comedy movie and a lot of people seem to find it hilarious but it's a, a kind of comedy that I actually don't like at all and it's like when the protagonist is just basically, you know, crapped on for the entire movie like basically they just you know one thing after another happens to them that's absolutely terrible and it's like you know the, people are sitting there like laughing at this and and I I don't know me personally that like that whole um things are so uncomfortable that I'll laugh because I don't know what else to do with it is yeah. like, it, I, I don't like that style at all. Maybe I'm just too like, sensitive on these kinds of things. You don't like, you don't like, you don't like Groundhog Day. Well, Groundhog, well, no, I did like Groundhog Day actually. <laughs> I'm thinking, specifically, I'm thinking of um, that Ben Stiller movie called Meet the Parents. Where it's basically oh, yeah. like he goes, he goes to meet the parents of his soon-to-be wife, and like it's just basically they're terrible people, and they treat him badly the whole time, and he's just like excluded from everything, and and like I don't know, I, I was sitting in a theater full of people when that movie first came out, and everybody's laughing, and I'm like, I don't find this funny at all. I just yeah. felt really it bad for painful. the guy. It was painful. It was painful. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. The, it's that painful comedy. That's that's even the lighter side of roast comedy. I mean, some of it is. Well, yeah. That's that's where I think you have to have that agreement. But that's different. That's different than what you're talking about in a comedy movie, mm-hmm. where the character mm-hmm. is is ripped on. But I agree. There's a lot of that. It makes me really uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I have a super thin skin too. So like you know, I yeah, have friends who too. will pick on me. Good natured. They're not being mean. It's all part of the joke. But I uh, <clears throat> I have a hard time with it. And I'll be like, uh, I'm not taking this well. <laughs> 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 I know I should, you know. Are you offended, <laughs> Jonathan? <laughs> no, I honestly no, I just get I just get locked up. I don't know how to like interact that way. But that's why I'm not a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> but you like comedy. I do, I love it. Uh but I think that uh it's a really interesting area to explore the idea of happiness because of that juxtaposition where most comics the, what gives them the observations that are funny about the world is their misery. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's funny because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes down to that in a lot of ways. 
Um, I know like one example is, uh, is Robin Williams who, you know, obviously was quite miserable because he committed suicide, but, um, you know, he, he had this like insight and especially during his peak, um, where he, he was just very good at this sort of observational kind of humor. Um, but meanwhile, he was, he was kind of a miserable guy. So I often wonder if they just have this kind of power of insight to kind of see the world and kind of see, like take situations for what they are without getting wrapped up in them. And then kind of, you know, offer that up as, uh, you know, a tool for comedy. But yeah. really, it's actually affecting them more deeply. Right. So do you guys think that people can talk themselves out of being unhappy? Or do you think that happiness can be synthesized in your own mind? It's more about your outlook on things versus some objective sense of, happiness or unhappiness i think the latter yeah yeah i don't well, know i'm gonna th- talking yourself out of unhappiness sounds like what was loop you know like it just wouldn't work mm-hmm. um but i don't know sorry uh, what were you gonna say no i just i'm, I'm i i don't have an answer necessarily but i, I just kind of think of um you know people who get really wrapped up in kind of negative thought loops and things and are, are very kind of prone to have a negative outlook um, that there might be kind of sort of like cognitive behavioral type tools that they could use to kind of get out of that. Now, that's not necessarily like, yeah, like it's not necessarily talking yourself out of unhappiness, I guess, but it's kind of like um, getting to the root of maybe like maybe it's it's the difference between kind of like suffering and versus conscious suffering in that, um, you know, if, if you just kind of are prone to this kind of negative um, outlook that I think there is something that can be done about that. But um, whether that means that suddenly like, you know, you go from being a generally unhappy person to being a blissfully happy person, I don't think that's really the case. Yeah. Well, there's this uh, Harvard professor. I listened to one of his presentations And he conducted this study where they presented people with like five different Monet prints, works of art, and they had them pick which one they liked the best. And at the end of the study, they gave it to them. Well, they had two choices and they gave them one. And then they went back a few days later and said, well, you know, we want you to re-rate these Monet prints. And at Initially, like if they might have rated the one that they got lower, but after the study was over and they came back and asked them to rate it again, they rated the one that they had at home as the best of the Monet prints. Mm. So he was saying that people can synthesize happiness and convince yourself that what you have right now is better than what it was that you wanted before and didn't get. And like he Mm. used like uh, Pete Best, the initial drummer with the Beatles before he got replaced with Ringo Starr. Uh, and how, you know, Pete Best says he's totally okay with it. You know, he's still a musician. He works as a studio musician and he doesn't feel slighted in the least. And he said he probably would have been better off if he'd never, you know, been with the Beatles and he doesn't feel like he suffered at all from not being famous or anything like that. So was this guy like, was he truly happy with his life? Because most people will say, oh, he's just saying that because he doesn't want to feel bad because he wasn't a part of the Beatles. But uh, can people convince themselves that what they have is really better than what 
they had an opportunity for. It's like they have no other option but to accept their lot in life. And so it really makes no sense for them to lament what they missed out on. I, I kind of disagree only because uh, if you get, if anybody's ever been to Los Angeles or Las Vegas knows that what he said is absolutely true. He's way better off never having been in that world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's true. But I mean, you know, <clears throat> that example aside, I think that people do have a remarkable capacity for kind of talking themselves into not feeling bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like anything that would cause some kind of cognitive dissonance, like they just have to find a way to kind of get rid of that. So we'll adopt an attitude that that makes it so it doesn't matter. Sure. Um, Even you know, at the it's, expense it's, it's, of reality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, people, you know, people have a way of, you know, idealizing the past and stuff and forgetting about all the, the, the bad stuff that happened and only remembering the good parts. And like, so, yeah, I guess maybe this kind of goes back to Tiff's question about whether somebody can talk themselves out of um, being unhappy. Maybe happiness is so like, you know, subjective and maybe it's more like, like oh, I'm having trouble exact, you know, wording this it's exactly, malle- but it's, it's kind of like malleable, right? they're, they're malleable. That's a good word for it actually. And it's kind of like, you know, it, it's happiness is just all, it seems to kind of be like more about an attitude than anything else. So maybe it is really easy to just kind of talk yourself out of, out of unhappiness into happiness. Yeah. And I don't think it necessarily means that you're denying reality. Like how many of us have been in a relationship with somebody and then broken up and was totally miserable. And then a few years later, like, oh, breaking up with this person was the best thing to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes it. it can be reality based and it really was the best decision. But at the time, you didn't feel it, you know, as being yeah. that way. Well, emotions are elusive too. So it's it, with with experience comes that well, that was the best thing that happened. But when you're marred in the moment mm-hmm. of those chemicals overriding your brain, and you know it, it tends to be like a downward spiral if you just start to focus on all the things that went wrong. Mm-hmm. And and mm. but then, like you were saying, Doug, like looking back on the past, it's like you have to have a realistic perspective about it. Like, yes, that was hard mm. and that was painful, but I'm where I'm at now because of it. Yeah, and they've even done studies on people who had, like, horrible accidents and became paralyzed. Like, after the initial event where they, you know, had to cope with being paralyzed, all of a sudden they might have had this real, you know, kind of low point. But then eventually they get back to the same baseline level of happiness that they had throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I I think... um... I think an important sort of question to ask here also is, um, is, is it actually necessary to talk yourself out of unhappiness? Like, I, and I think this is context dependent because, because I think because of this whole sort of positive psychology movement and everything like that, and we're constantly bombarded with messages that we should always be happy. Um, then we tend to neglect or we tend to sh- shy away from the periods of our lives where there is suffering and there are unpleasant emotions. And that by when you are in this state of unhappiness, is it actually 
appropriate to try and talk yourself out, out of that. You, you know, mm. I think this is this can go two ways because if you are a, a type of person who is particularly vulnerable to sort of negative thought loops and um, you know negative thoughts that um, that don't necessarily correspond with reality, then I think sometimes that is appropriate to sort of pick yourself up and say, well, actually, I'm just falling into these negative thinking patterns again. And, um, you know, technically, this is a waste of energy. You know, I I, uh, sort of objectively analyze the situation by using your intellect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes yeah. that, that, that is called for. However, I think for a lot of us, and this is me included a lot of the time, is that um, when I am feeling unhappy, I will attempt to come up with a way to sort of um, take myself out of that, but mm-hmm. without actually dealing with the initial or the, the originating emotion. Um, and then it's kind of a way to to um, to neglect that or to 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 um, to essentially block out those feelings. So I think it, it links in with the with the the idea that a lot of us have or that we're told that we should always be happy. And so when you are feeling unhappy or when you're feeling depressed or, or whatever, that it's it's not not always appropriate to try and take yourself out of that and mm-hmm. and. And we should actually try to learn to to sort of really deal with those feelings and not 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 shy away from them, not try to block them out, not run away from them, because they're they're also useful to help us navigate our reality. Yeah. So sometimes Mm. feeling unhappy is okay, and it's good. You know, it's really good to do that. And so I don't think I don't believe that it's necessary to always try to to run away from that or to block that out. You know, because it it can teach Mm. us a lot about ourselves. Yeah, I think a lot of that is conditioned in childhood. Mm -hmm. Like you get Mm -hmm. attention for being happy and bubbly and joyful and all that stuff. But as soon as you are angry or frustrated or you're sad, people are like, oh, just cheer up, put on a happy face. And we learn throughout life to just kind of block out all those negative feelings. But those negative feelings are just as valid as feeling happy sometimes. Mm -hmm. And by blocking them out, you're doing yourself a disservice. You should just let those feelings sit with you and accept them and try not to like talk yourself out of it or distract yourself from that feeling. It's okay to feel bad sometimes because that's just a part of life just as much as being happy is. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's, I I think that we've, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. I I was just going to say there was a really, really good book. Um, It's called inviting a monkey to tea by Nancy Collier. Um, And that, yeah, this, that, that, book in particular deals with what we're talking about here and she she basically lays out um a framework of 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 well-being i think i think her her, her, her the main point of the book is that the aim to be happy is it's never going to be accomplished um and that it's it's fundamentally neglecting the other half of reality the human the human existence that you know that we face it's uh, half of it is is negative and and what we see is negative but actually by acknowledging both sides or all of those emotions the the whole range of emotions that we experience um that leads to well-being like you know she she talks about well-being a lot and she says that that is that should ultimately be an aim it should be Mm to accomplish uh, a greater sense of well-being and that that sort of encompasses both the positive and the negative whereas the aim of being happy 
it's never going to be accomplishable. Totally. Yep, that makes sense to me. I think like essentially what we're saying throughout this whole conversation is that what causes happiness and happiness itself are both essentially subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, because like uh, it just depends on how you define it. Like a, a, a junkie uh, who is, you know, um, laid out on heroin is ostensibly happy or they think they're happy, you know, perhaps. Whereas uh, uh, as well, a person who maybe is uh, clean and sober and doing something wholesome that makes them happy, they also feel that. They feel a similar way, but in a completely different context. And one is harming themselves. The other is not, you know, so there's all these different things. I mean, you know, the guy who uh, jumps out of planes in a, in a wingsuit is happy, <laughs> but I think he's crazy, you know, uh, <laughs> and would never do that. It doesn't sound fun to me, but to him that, that brings happiness. This is completely subjective across the board. But or he's I, just I, an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I do think, I do think though, that what we're kind of lighting on is that, um, this idea of fulfillment, uh, not necessarily satisfaction, but fulfillment and meaning and um, community, that those things bring mm-hmm. what what we would, what makes more sense to call that happiness than other, than other things. Mm-hmm. Yep. So do we want to play this clip now that we have? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, please. Awesome. It's by J.P. Sears. It's called The Terrorism of Happiness. And it's not the usual snarky uh, J.P. Sears. He's, he's actually you know, said a lot of good things in this clip. And it'll be a good wrap up for what we're trying to say during this show. Hey there, friends. Today I'd like to talk with you about the terrorism of happiness. Hmm. Sounds terrible, you say. I don't know why you say that. I don't know why I say that you say that. But the terrorism of happiness, I'm borrowing this term from a friend of mine, Garrick Brennan, and I love the term terrorism of happiness. Why? Because I think when we try to make our lives only happy, when we try to be happy all the time, I think it does actually terrible things to us. I think it actually makes us incredibly unhappy to try and pursue 24-7 happiness. Hmm, that seems interesting, you say, JP. And again, I don't know why I say that you say that. But anyway, on with the show. The terrorism of, of happiness. When we try to be happy all the time, to me it's like looking at a rainbow and saying, I wish there was only blue in that rainbow. I wish that whole rainbow was the color blue. Blue might be our favorite color. Happiness might be our favorite emotion. But there seems to be a reason why life puts six other colors in the rainbow. There seems to be a reason, in my opinion, why life puts many other emotional frequencies in our body to experience. But why do we try to block all of them out but happiness? Well, why do, why it's like looking at why would I try to erase all the colors out of the rainbow except for my favorite color. So I do think this is kind of a public service call to embrace everything in us that's also not happiness. That's what I'd invite you to do. By all means, please do embrace happiness. I I personally want deep and profound happiness in my life. 
but I don't want my life to be only that. Even if I did want that, I don't think I could get it. I think I could probably cause a lot of suffering trying to get only deep and profound happiness in my life. So what I find when we try to be exclusive with just happiness, it causes, to, it causes us to have a lot of shame about our other real authentic feelings and emotions. It's like we, we look at Facebook, we look at other people in our lives where we tend to, we see other people just presenting happiness. <clears throat> they hide their other stuff. They've got it. They don't show it to us. We pretend like they don't have it, but they've got it. So they just show us their happiness, probably because when they were children, just like us, they were validated when they were happy. And they were probably invalidated when they weren't happy. It's like a, a little boy or a girl sitting on the floor acting happy. Mom and dad say, oh, good boy, good girl. But when they're sad, when they're angry, mom and dad are trying to get them to feel something other than the sadness, other than the anger, other than the fear, other than the shame. So that's what we learn as kids. Therefore, that's what we kind of see adult children doing, only presenting happiness because we feel as though I can be validated when I'm happy, but I'll be invalidated. I won't matter when I'm not happy. So we see this trick society plays on us. We see other people being happy all the time, or at least that's only what they show us. So we start to think that, oh, that's what I should be. Therefore, when I have these other authentic feelings that come up, sadness, depression, we start to have shame about those. And I do think that does, our, does us an injustice. When we have shame about our non-happy emotions, it's like we give us, we, we revoke permission to feel them. And I would dare say that pursuit of happiness that causes us to shame ourselves for being authentic and real with our other emotions can make us pretty damn unhappy. Hmm. I would also dare say one of the other elements of how the pursuit of exclusive happiness can make us very unhappy is this. We live in a relative world. You need to know hot before you can know cold. You need to know sadness if you want to know happiness. You need to know hate if you want to know love. So with that said, when we are pursuing exclusive happiness, oftentimes we do that at the expense of denying our sadness in this case. So the more we deny our sadness, the less we're able to go into our sadness and the less we're able to go into our sadness, the less we're actually able to go into our happiness because we're relative creatures. The depth of my tears determines the depth of my laugh. As sad as I can get, that's how happy I can get. So when I deny my sadness because I say, JP, you can only be happy, that actually limits the depth of happiness that I can go in. So when I don't allow myself to get sad, that starts to make my experience of happiness more and more shallow. And as my experience of happiness gets more and more shallow, it makes me want to pursue exclusive happiness even more, which means I'm probably denying sadness with more force, which means my ability to be happy gets even more shallow. So, because I love happiness, 
that means I also have to learn to love sadness. Fear, anger, guilt, grief, jealousy, shame. I've got to learn how to love those. Doesn't mean I have to like them. It means I have to learn how to accept them and embrace them. To the degree I can get sad, give myself permission to be real with my sadness. Even though it feels crappy and sad in that very moment, that's what fertilizes my ability to grow genuine happiness to likely a new degree. And this is not an indictment that you need to go out and make yourself sad. You need to go out and break up with your spouse so that you can just have an excuse to feel sad so that you can then oscillate to the other polarity of newfound happiness. Eh, I don't think we need to go out and seek and create new sadness. I think all we need to do is embrace the sadness that arises. You know, we don't need to find sadness. It finds us. When we have an experience in life that's essentially triggering of sadness, it comes up. It finds us. All we need to do is learn how to look our sadness in the eyes and say, it's okay that you're a part of me. I feel sad and it's okay. And I'll keep feeling sad until I'm not sad anymore. And that's okay. It'll feel like crap in the moment. It's not going to be my favorite emotion. But if I want to be happy, if I want to be genuinely happy at times, then I have to be genuinely sad at times. Hmm. That's something to think about. Happiness is my favorite emotion. And if it was left to my greedy little ego, my ego would probably say, yeah, I want to be happy all the time. Luckily for me, I don't get everything I want. I would guess sometimes, actually, I, screw that. I would guess most of the time, if you and I got what we want all the time, it would be one of the worst things for us. Because we have to think, what part of us is wanting this want? Uh, our spirit self is probably sitting there pretty whole and complete, doesn't have a whole lot of wantingness. At least I want to believe that. Our ego probably comes from a place of lack, void, and therefore gener generates a lot of our wants. Not saying it's bad to pursue our wants. I'm just saying it's probably good that we don't get everything we want all the time. I want to be happy all the time. Follow that breadcrumb trail of our ego. I want to be happy, and paradoxically, it probably lands us in a lot of unhappiness. My favorite food is ice cream. It's probably a really good thing that I don't always fill up on my favorite food. Probably a good thing I don't always fill up on just the pursuit of sadness. Happiness is what I meant. I'm sad that I screwed that up. And in this moment, I'll just be real with you. I'm not really happy in this moment. I actually feel sad. And I don't need to give you or me a story to justify why I have the right to feel sad. Emotions work without logic. I would dare say any story that you and I start to create about our sadness begins to disconnect us from our sadness. Our stories about why we're sad probably start to suppress our sadness. I'll tell myself a story about my sadness 
to try and leverage me towards happiness, which means I'm leveraged away from my sadness, which means my depth of happiness is going to be shallow relative to what it would be if I allowed myself to deep dive into my feeling of sadness without a story. We don't need to prove we have the right to feel sad. All we need to do is feel sad when our sadness finds us. And I would dare say when we can do that, we'll no longer be terrorized by happiness. Sit with that. How can happiness terrorize your life? Hmm. And how can paradoxically pursuing permission to be sad amplify your happiness? Is the purpose of life to experience one color or is the purpose of life to experience every color of the rainbow? It's a good question. Good question. That's how it ended. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, I I don't know if I can handle JP giving real advice. Yeah. Yeah. I think his actual occupation is that he's like a life coach. Or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And that's a genuine thing, but he's also really good at comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was great. Yeah. Uh, I, honestly, I'm not sure what to uh, to add to that. He kind of summed it up really perfectly there. Um, yeah. Should we? That's uh, why we uh, saved it for the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, would have just ended the show if we started with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, should we go to Zoya's segment? She has a segment for us today, so let's uh, let's see what Zoya has for us, and then we will come back and wrap it up after this. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, I would like to share with you two recordings on the topic of emotions and happiness. First recording has to do with emotions and if animals have them. Well, we know they do, but there are some facts that perhaps you don't know about. And the second one has to do with humans and how watching animals and nature documentaries makes us happy and content. Well, enjoy and perhaps after this radio show, watch a couple of funny animal videos or simply hug your pet. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Many animals shed tears to lubricate the eyes and wash away dust and debris. However, recently the story of Zhuang Zhuang, the newborn elephant who cried inconsolably for five hours after being violently stepped on and kicked by his own mother, has many wondering if those tears come from the same emotions people feel. Experts in animal behavior say that some animals may cry as we do from emotions like sadness or stress. Similar to human babies who cannot communicate in other ways, cries may be from desires for touch, attention, or other needs. According to studies, chicken, mice, and rats all showed the complex ability to feel another's pain. Similarly, more than 50% of dog owners report that their dogs try to comfort them when sensing the owner's distress. More than 70% of dog owners said their dogs had demonstrated separation anxiety by whimpering or howling. Another study confirmed rats, dogs, and chimpanzees also laugh. If animals do feel emotions like happiness or sadness, to what extent do they match what people feel? What is happiness? Can we find it in a new pair of shoes? 
a fast car or a bigger house? Or does real happiness lie somewhere else? Hundreds of studies have proved that spending time in nature can make us feel better both in mind and body in a way that nothing else can. We wanted to find out whether simply watching footage of the natural world could have the same effect. Last year, we partnered with Professor Daka Keltner, an expert in human psychology and emotion at the University of California, Berkeley. For this project, he has reviewed over 150 scientific studies that explore the positive effect of nature on humans. We also asked over 7,500 people in six countries to tell us how they were feeling before and after watching Planet Earth 2 clips. This data showed significant increases in joy, contentment, curiosity, awe, amazement and wonder and clear reductions in tiredness and low energy. It even reduced stress, especially among younger viewers. These findings revealed that wildlife programs can cause viewers to experience positive emotions. My study of human happiness has revealed that these emotions, amazement, wonder, and awe, are the foundations of a powerful form of real human happiness. Real happiness is a deeper, less transient form of happiness that can positively affect our health and well-being. So by simply watching incredible footage of our natural world, you too can experience these uplifting emotions, helping you to be more connected with this amazing place we call home. Oh, if you guys want to experience exactly the message of this, um, well, this uh, pet segment show, you guys have to watch Tiny Giants. Mm. It's uh, from 2014. It's a documentary adventure. That sounds cool. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, that made a lot of sense. Uh, I... Uh... I have uh, similar experiences uh, myself just being in nature, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Watching cat videos certainly makes me happy. (laughs) 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 um, I guess, I I mean, I I don't have that much else to add right now. Do you guys have anything, any other observations? I guess that there's nothing wrong with feeling happy. (laughs) But to pursue it at the expense of all other emotions is folly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Cut and print. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank thank you to our listeners. Uh, thank you for taking part in that. Uh, be sure to listen to the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern Time. If you're not in the Eastern Time Zone, go to or everybody should go to radio.sat.net, and on there the airtime will be shown in your local time zone. Um, so be sure to check that out, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. I made Thanks. us happy. Bye. 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 <laughs> Have a wonderful day. Bye. <laughs>